the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. She is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and a member of the board of the National Council on Aging and past chair there as well. And, Carol, we've got a great guest coming up in just a moment, uh, Joe Carella, who's into community living for seniors and everyone else. Well, you know, Joe has an interesting background. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm. You're going to want to hear how he got interested in senior living because it's a it's an unusual story. So we're excited story. to have him. We'll have him on in just a few minutes, and it is a great story. So let me ask all of you a question: Do you drink coffee? I admit to drinking coffee. Well, you know, I I admit to drinking coffee. Not only do I drink coffee, not like eight cups a day, but we drink either Cajun coffee with the chicory in it, which you know, if you you cannot see the spoon at the bottom of the coffee cup, yeah, I, I can know tell your, you that your husband offered me one when we were driving down to Corpus. I stopped to pick you up, and I I couldn't finish. A third of that cup, let me tell you. <laughs> it's really stiff. Either that or, you know, we, we bought a, um, after going to Italy, we brought um, an espresso machine, cappuccino machine. So the really, the high test stuff. I love my coffee. So what's the problem with drinking it? So the, actually there's no problem. Oh, but good. This, that's <laughs> the good news. That and So I don't know if any of you saw it in the New York Times, but you know, we've been hearing that coffee could be good for you. And I think the assumption was that somehow it was the caffeine, but they looked at 500,000 British people. How can, I didn't know the British people. I thought they drank tea. Exactly. So the 500,000 who drink coffee, who were middle-aged, about my age in their late 50s, um, they looked at their coffee consumption, uh, and three-quarters of them were coffee drinkers, and then they followed them for 10 years. And that they, if they found the risk of death from any cause, any cause at all, but particularly cancer or cardiovascular, like heart attack or stroke, declined as coffee consumption increased. So the more coffee, the less cancer, the less heart attack. And those who drank a cup a day had a 6% lower risk than those who drank less than that. And if you drank eight or more cups, you had 14% lower risk. So those people, like, you know, my roommate in college, Ann, if you're out there, um, she used to drink, I don't know, a pot of coffee right before bedtime. And she still went to sleep. She's probably, I mean, she must be out there kicking somewhere. Uh, so that's adjusted for race, age wow. and race and smoking and all of that. And But the good news is it didn't matter if it was caffeinated or decaffeinated, it didn't matter if it was ground, you know, Nescafe, um, instant, instant coffee. It, none of that mattered. It was the coffee. Uh, and so, you know, it's, does it mean we should drink more coffee? They, they're not going to go so far as to say that. But it shows that people um, that, that do drink coffee, you know, it's not going to hurt. So maybe I need an extra cup. I, I usually have one cup in the morning. Yeah. So a cup of I have a cup of caffeinated and then a decaf because you really don't want to bounce around work. <laughs> I, I I would be bouncing around all day long. So another question: Do you smoke? And I am amazed today. You still see smokers. You walk into buildings and you see cigarette butts out in front of that building. Uh, do you smoke? And, and why is that an important question? Well, you know, we tend to think that everything in moderation, so maybe if you don't smoke much, that at one or two cigarettes a day, maybe that's not so bad um, if you do smoke. But there's a, a latest study that came out uh, recently that showed that even one cigarette a day 
put you at higher risk of heart attack and stroke. Wow. And so they looked at 141 different studies, 14 million participants. This was a huge study. Um, and the rate of heart disease and stroke was not reduced as much as you would have thought by the heavy smokers versus those that only had it hmm. even one cigarette a day. So um, if you're thinking about quitting, if you're one of those people that Ron's talking about that still smokes, you know, it's better to quit, just quit, than to cut down, according to the latest research. I used to smoke three packs a day. Now, see, I would never know that about you. You had to stay up late and get up early to get them all in. <laughs> but this was when, in the in the 50s and 60s, we could smoke in the workplace. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the work, you, everybody was, you know, had coffee. You had coffee smoke and breaks a cigarette. And coffee and a cigarette all the time. That was still going on when I started working. You know, people still regularly smoked in the office. Wow. And, you know, we were t- I was talking to my dad recently about his trip to Switzerland and, and how, you know, you couldn't even see the other passengers in the airplane because in an overseas flight like that, the smoke was so thick. Wow. My, how times have changed. Well, and I'm glad I quit. Well, it's a good thing because you got to keep up with those little kids. <laughs> That's exactly right. Wow, Reagan turned seven in September. I can't believe it. Next question: Do you exercise? Well, there we go. We're so you've so far we do. You know, do you smoke? Do you drink coffee? Do you exercise? So the question is: We've been hearing lately that it's. Calorie control is how you lose weight. It's not necessarily the exercise. Because when you exercise, you eat more to make up for it. So, of course, someone wanted to test that out. And this also came from the New York Times. So what did they do? They went out and they rounded up some people who were overweight. um, And they had some of them exercise. And then they had some of them exercise and, wait a second, exercise twice as much. So one was burn 1,500 calories a day. The other was 3,000 calories a day. And then they just watched um, how they ate. So, you know, that was the so twice as much exercise. The folks that exercise the 30 minutes a day, which is how much you need to lose the 1,500 calories a day, they some of them gained weight. and They didn't lose much fat. They pretty much stayed the same. Wow. And, and it didn't make that much difference. But the folks who exercised an hour a day, basically, and burned up 3,000 calories, they did lose weight. So they ate two-thirds as much as they, you know, they ate two-thirds of the calories they burned, but that still left them a third cushion to lose weight. So Interesting. it was, yes, you exercise and does make you hungry, and if it does, then you need to exercise twice as much, and you'll lose weight, and you'll feel better, but um, you're going to have to exercise twice as hard. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. There's a guy in my neighborhood who walks, and, and I see him uh, every day, no matter what the weather, who appears to be overweight. And I have seen him walking for seven or eight years now, every single day, and he doesn't look like he's lost an ounce. And that's that question about can you be fit and overweight? Right. And you can be, I so, guess. So, yeah, there's that, there, there are... You know, if I think of those the folks that are walking or exercising and, and are and are overweight, that how much better they're doing than if they didn't exercise. <laughs> Probably. Well, I mean, because it could be it could be much worse, and you know, it's better for their heart. Couch potato to walking is the best thing you can do. So we salute those folks who are are walking and exercising. Absolutely. But you're going to have to exercise harder if you want to lose weight. I mean, there are a couple of things that uh, inventions have not helped us, and one is the automatic garage door opener. Just think of the calories you don't burn sitting in the car. Right. I mean, in the old days, I remember my dad pulling in front of the house. He'd pull in the driveway. He had to get out of the car, open the garage door, which weighed a lot, and then park the car, lower the garage door. Well, and then you moved to Texas where you didn't have to go out in the morning, start your car, let it run for a while, then go out again, chip the ice off the the window. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then you got to get into the car. That's why people in colder climates, they burn more calories, they live longer. I think you're right. Next up, do you drink alcohol? Well, there we go. That was the last one. So coffee, smoke, exercise. Yeah, I I don't smoke. So that was a no. But the three did. Did you ever smoke? No, never have. Never have. Good for you. Now, my grandfather had a heart attack, his first heart attack when I was eight, and he um, made me promise to never smoke. 
And I had always, you know, he would have been so mad if I had ever smoked, so I never did. But um, I do drink alcohol. He never told me not to drink, so that's all right. <laughs> uh, and, and we keep hearing this. So what's the real story about alcohol and heart health? This is from Harvard Health Publishing, which is from the Harvard Medical School. And so far, what we know about drinking alcohol is that it increases levels of your good cholesterol, the HDL, that's your good cholesterol, um, and it helps keep the bad cholesterol from clogging your arteries. It, makes, it helps it go down to your liver, which where it's broken down. Um, but drinking alcohol, there are other ways you could could increase your good HDL besides drinking drinks. So um, a moderate amount of alcohol, again, and doesn't have damaging effects, but you really have to, this is the one you do have to focus on moderation. And so um, what happens if you drink a lot of alcohol is your heart rate goes up. And so if you do have a heart condition, this can be dangerous for you. And the other thing is, in moderation, uh, when you look at actually the amounts that are prescribed in moderation, it's not a lot. No, it's actually pretty small. So, you know, what they're recommending from Harvard, so we have to listen to them, I suppose, is, um, you know, people that had 10 or more drinks a week died one to two years earlier uh, than those who drank five or fewer drinks. And if you want to measure that, what's a drink? So that's 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, an ounce and a half of 80-proof spirits, or just an ounce of 100-proof spirits. So <laughs> the stronger the alcohol, the less you get to drink. So that, you know, so they're, I guess they're saying what we've been hearing is that it, a little bit of alcohol can help you out, but it really means a little bit. It's like, remember the study with the chocolate where you only got to eat the one square? Right. And which is a tiny little bit. No, you can't eat one yeah, square. One square one square of dark chocolate is good to you and one tiny little five ounce stingy glass of wine is good for you. Oh, yeah. did I say that out loud? <laughs> you did. Now when you take a look at our next guest who's coming up, Joe Corella, who's been very involved in community living, community housing, you've spent some time thinking about this whole issue. Well, I think the important thing is that Joe Carell is going to talk to us um, about some of his travels. And people don't realize how much of aging and the way you know we do things are cultural and very specific to the United States. And so what if, what if we looked around at the rest of the world to see what they were doing? Would we do things differently? And I think Joe Carella would say we probably should. Well, we look forward to talking to him in just a couple of moments. And remember, Take 10 follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, and we take up fascinating topics, which we will do again later on in this show. We're delighted you're with us on 930 AM The Answer. Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. Joe Carella, up next. We know caregiving is stressful, challenging, often frustrating, but it can be rewarding. Learn about caregiving while helping yourself at the 2018 San Antonio Caregiver Summit, Navigating the Journey, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Speakers include New York Times reporter John Leland, author of Happiness is a Choice You Make, and Dr. Sharon Lewis, recognized expert on caregiving issues and developer of the stress-busting program. The conference also includes a panel of experts focusing on navigating the end-of-life journey. The summit is on November 1st, 2018, 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Whitley Theological Center, 285 Oblate Drive. Social work and nursing CEUs are available. Free respite care also available for up to 20 spots. The event is free, including lunch, but pre-registration is required online at caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491, 866-390-6491. 6491. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we are about to welcome to our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline a man who is uh, very involved in center living in communities that uh, provide all kinds of uh, comforts and housing for seniors. Uh, he's very knowledgeable about the San Antonio Living uh, San Diego, Scandinavian. I'll get it. Scandinavian Living <laughs> Centers, and his name is Joe Corella, Executive Director of Scandinavian Living Center, and author of the book Creating Unlimited Options 
for aging, the path forward. And Joe, before I jump to you, Carol, I know you have for a long time looked at the kind of uh, senior living communities that pull all the resources together for seniors. Uh, you think there's a future for that in this city? Well, I, I hope so, and I'm anxious to hear what Joe has to say, um, because the Scandinavians have been ahead of the United States in many ways for quite a long time in their concept of senior living. So, Joe, welcome to the show, and, and tell us a little bit about why Scandinavia. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I I was able to get a research grant over 20 years ago to go to Scandinavia and travel. And at that time, I was looking for answers. I had had a, uh, this whole, my journey started with a, I was mistakenly placed in a geriatric unit as a teenager. I was a physically fit person. And just to make a long story short, after four days, four nights, I was destroyed. Blood pressure was 230 over 180. I had a sibling who talked to me probably a couple of years, waited to talk to me. I think the family thought they were going to lose me. But what it did is opened up my eyes that this is terrible the way we treat elders. This is just too institutional. And it was just a taste. I was a young boy and looking for answers. So eventually I ended up uh, working for a Scandinavian organization, and they were and, and in addition to getting a grant, I was able to go to Scandinavia. And at the time, I was looking for what what is the future for rest homes. This is back in the 90s. And I came back with principles that were just common sense. So 20 years ago, I, I wrote about it because people were telling me, well, it can't be done. It's only done in Scandinavia. It doesn't make sense for the states. And at the time, I was talking about deinstitutionalizing all our, all the places from nursing homes, assisted living, independent. And what I allude, and I had all these principles, but what what I alluded to was this concept of community-centered living, which actually can be a movement that changes an entire in, uh, industry. It helps deinstitutionalize everything we do in design and in our thinking. So what they do is, if you take community-centered living, is basically you want to gather people in all these housing places from nursing homes, assisted living, to independent living, to continuing care retirement communities. So if you accept and embrace the idea that you want all people to gather, not just the people living in the, within the four walls, but the entire community from all the towns and cities throughout the country. And what's nice about that is it's not a cookie-cutter answer. It's what, it, what are the needs of every town and city across this country, and what do we need to do to uh, have them gather in these housing places? Well, the trick is you have to deinstitutionalize your thinking and your design. So when we came back, when I came back and we started building the Scandinavian Living Center, one of the principles is maintaining and promoting a welcoming residential setting. You can't have people gather if you create hospital-like institutional setting. And so 50% of our facility here is common space. We knew that we were going to bring in the community. We were going to find a way to get them to gather here. And I'll give you the statistics. How many people come through our front door without counting family members and visitors of the loved ones living here? Now, where is the here? Scandinavian Living Center in Newton, Massachusetts. Okay. And it's a small, traditional assisted living. Well, let me give you the number. We have 40 apartments, but we have over 2,000 visitors a month. So that that alone gives you over 2,000 sets of eyes that are going to look at your place. Now, if you have a great place and nobody's coming, no one's visiting this, uh, you don't have the opportunity for your community to see, well, this is the way it should be. For the past 100 years, you... Uh, me and everybody, we've had this distortion that because we've gone to these institutional settings in the past, we came up with an answer 100 years ago to take care of our elders, and, and it was good. 100 years ago, we had to keep them safe, but we disconnected our elders from their neighbors and friends. So 100 years later, we know that when someone goes into a housing place, they're being isolated. It doesn't matter how beautiful the place is because it's not built for the neighbors. It's not built for the community. It's built for the people living there, which is good, but that's institutional thinking. You're creating a building that isolates the residents from the rest of their neighbors. The most powerful part of a community are the elders with all this experience, and we're building these places that give no realm or opportunity 
opportunity for people to gather. And I'm not talking about when children come in the holidays and sing to the residents. To me, that's nice, but it's not normal. Now hold that thought. Stay with us. We're talking with Joe Carello, who is the uh, director of the Scandinavian Living Center, author of the new book, Creating Unlimited Options for Aging the Path Forward. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. And so, Joe, I I gather your challenge was while you wanted to build a a beautiful facility uh, that was uh, comfortable and attractive to those living there, what is it you did to attract the outside world? Well, we, you have to have the space. We had a big, uh, what we call, big Nordic Hall. Uh, we have a, a public Scandinavian library here. I mean, this works for us, so every place has to think it through and find out what the needs of the community are. We have over 25, probably over 30, I'll say 25 to 30, but I, I, I'm sure it's over 30, orga, nonprofit organizations and groups that utilize that place to meet and come together. So the residents living here have this opportunity to touch base and create this human connection with the people coming and going. We have an outpatient physical therapy that all ages come here. Now, we've had children here, and the, and the, the parent would say, well, oh, I don't think my child belongs here. Uh, there's a lot of old people around. And this is that institutional thinking, this, this distortion that's developed over the past 100 years. And what happens is, and we don't push anything, it's, all, it's just like any neighborhood, any good neighborhood where people are coming and going and connecting. And we've had, uh, like, I, like I just said, that we've had a parent say, well, I don't think my teenage boy, who's probably 15, 16 years old, belongs here. But a week later, it's, a, it's, it's not even, a, uh, it's a mute point because the boy all of a sudden goes into our cafe and starts having drinks with the residents. It happened naturally. So right away, you're creating a potential connection between an elder and a young person. Now, what is it that would have attracted uh, that 16-year-old to your center? Well, we had an outpatient physical therapy. He needed to go and get some therapy, and ah. he came to our place. So, what, And when he came here, he was surprised, well, this is an assisted living. And that's the beauty of it. It's not about promoting the assisted living. It's promoting community, creating a neighborhood within an assisted living. We have a pop-up cafe that's open every Saturday, run by volunteers, and it's, it closes in July and August so people can go away on vacation. But we have neighbors that come by here to meet with neighbors, not to visit a loved one. I've been here on a Saturday, and I've seen a neighbor, and what are you doing here? Oh, I'm just stopping by to have coffee with a friend. We have a cultural center, and they have programs. They, to me, when I, when I look at our Scandinavian Cultural Center, they they create programs. They're the gathering key. They bring programs in here from all over. And we have had neighbors who have not seen each other for 20 years come to a program for the cultural center, which happens to be in an assisted living, and connect. So let me like, so let me ask you a question just to make sure that I understand. Sure, you have sure. a, the Scandinavian Cultural Center is a is another entity is a nonprofit entity that is has its program it's it's housed on the campus of the assisted living exactly and so whatever they offer the residents of the assisted living can take advantage of that and that includes a meeting space where other nonprofits come and that your residents can take advantage of that but it also brings in people from the community to interact with your residents and it's all natural. And it's all natural because everybody's taking advantage of the programming, both inside the, with the assisted living and outside from the community. So it brings them together. And here's the difference. The residents go to these programs for free, and you and I have to buy a ticket. It's, 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 it's life. We're not pretending. We're not. It, it's the residents. That's their advantage of living here. Mm. But if I have to go on an event, I have to buy a ticket. So if I so if I grow up loving the Scandinavian Cultural Center, then I need to retire there so I can go to everything for free. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no, I mean, as, that's a, as a nonprofit, you can always make a donation. You can always make a donation. That's, right. That's, no, I mean, I think <laughs> I. You know, we um uh, at the Wilma Charitable Foundation, we operate senior centers, 
And we didn't even know it, but I, I th- we must have been channeling our inter- inner Scandinavian. We just had the different nonprofits. We didn't have any money for staff when we first opened in Austin, Texas. And so we just invited nonprofits. There were about 15 or 20 of them that came in and did their programs, and seniors from the community came. So, I, you know, you had me at hello. I already know this concept works. <laughs> um, and it was it was very successful, and those partnerships have stayed even after we could afford to pay people to, you know, to run the place. And, and Carol, here's the key. We also have a principle of autonomy. Now, 20 years ago, and, and this is the buzzword, oh, we want to promote autonomy for our residents. Well, now, with if you really embrace community-centered living, you're promoting autonomy for everyone, even the, the, the neighbors. They have to take responsibility, just like the residents, to make a choice. You have to give them the opportunities to come to a different type of program, a club, something, if it's the outpatient uh, uh, physical therapy. But everyone has to take autonomy. We're not just segregating the residents and saying, well, you know, now we're giving you autonomy. But it's not just the residents. They're part of a community. When I was hiring the director of the cultural center, I remember saying to her, your programs, they need to be top quality, but it's not about the residents. I don't want you to do anything for the residents. I want you to do it for the community. What I didn't say is that the residents are part of that same community. Because once we start to segregate, once that thinking goes to segregation of the residents or any population, to me that's institutional thinking. All right, Joe, we're going to come right back to you. Stick with us. Uh, Joe Carella, a very compelling story about Scandinavian living centers and the work he is doing. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and she is holding Joe's book, and the title of that book is... Creating Unlimited Options for Aging, The Path Forward. This is truly a fascinating story, and I loved when Carol Zerniel said, You got me at hello. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. We are talking on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline with Joe Carella, Executive Director of the Scandinavian Living Center and author of the new book, Creating Unlimited Options for Aging, the path forward. And Joe, I want to go back to the beginning. For those who may have joined us a little late, they may have missed this part of the story, which is fascinating. As a young kid, you were mistakenly placed in a ward in a hospital for uh, really old, aging seniors. How did that happen? Did you look old? when you're 18. <laughs> when you're under 18, you want to look 18. But what happened was they told me the pediatric ward was closed. That was the mistake. The pediatric ward was open all week. So, and, and, and it did, I didn't even know what geriatric ward meant. I had no idea. And I truly was a cocky teenager, a physically fit. Uh, my goals were to play college sports, uh, partying. I wasn't even a student. It, didn't, it wasn't important to me. But when I got into the geriatric ward, uh, I, had, I, I was sharing a room with two people. One had gangrene of the legs. Another one I found out later. Well, I figured it out later. He had Alzheimer's. But my bed was situated so I could look down the hallway, and I saw these people being posied and in wheelchairs. And uh, I had someone I worked for, believe it or not, within these four days. He passed away in a candy stripe, but told me by mistake. Ironically, for me to escape this institution, I had to beg by the fourth day, fifth day, I can't remember. It was a Friday. I begged the director of nursing. to. I said, you have to move me. I can't stay here. And I can remember just thinking about it now. I was sweating. I totally had lost it. And what happened, which was ironic, is the director of nursing was retiring that day. So I saw it all. I saw people losing their mind, people losing their legs, people walking away from their careers, going into the unknown. And it just, just, it it changed me. Everything became something has to be done. And when they put me in pediatrics, I, this was crazy. I got into pediatrics. It was open all week. I saw my roommate. I looked out the window. I had a view of the, the, her, uh, the, the morgue. So the hearsts were coming and going, and I can remember looking up saying, stop, I, need, I know what I need to do. My whole, from that moment on, I had my journey, I had my path, and I was going to find an answer. I had no idea. When you're 17, you just, it's not about changing the world, it's about 
finding an answer so I don't have to go back to that institutional setting. Now, what was what was your condition that uh, required that you be in an institutional setting? I just tore up my ACL. I tore up my knee, and that was it. And it was an ACL. I had no idea how serious the ACL was going to affect my sporting, but it was just a minor surgery that the environment around me basically destroyed me. And but it gave me direction, and, and you know, from bad things, good things come. I guess it's it's um, you know, you have to take these bad things that come in life, and just as we all know this, and it, it it's sometimes it's an opportunity. I hate to say that it was an opportunity for me to look at things differently and say, hey, I think that something has to be done. And people mistake my passion for a phobia. My phobia is I don't want to go back there. So I'll do whatever it takes to have everybody. Uh, I wish I could just say hello and everybody changes. But it's not. What I can do is connect people. When you have a great facility, and it is the best, it means nothing if you're in the clouds and no one's visiting you. So the industry can be changed when people are coming and going and connecting. I know we have over 2,000 visitors a month that come here, not visiting loved ones, but coming here for other things. But they're starting to change the way they think about housing. So, Some cases they have, go ahead. So tell me, uh, you, you visited Scandinavia, and you said it was for research. Now, was this to do research on their philosophy of you know, um, residential care, or you went for something else and you discovered that they had a different model? I went there looking for, you right, residential care, and I saw their nursing homes. And what really uh, touched me is Denmark was ahead of everybody. Denmark, which was the poorer of all the countries 60 years ago, everybody had to make a choice. We all had to fulfill a need for our, our elders. I think Sweden and Norway and others took the medical model like we did in the States. Denmark thought that was too expensive, and they decided to just take a residential setting. So everybody got a studio in, the, let's just say, nursing homes. So if you, everybody in Denmark has a studio in a nursing home. In some cases, they have balconies. And, and when I went there 40 years after the fact, and I started asking people in Denmark, nurses, administrators, even residents in the nursing homes, I would say, how do you feel about putting two, three, and four people in a room? They had no idea what I was talking about. Absolutely had no idea because they don't, didn't have an institutional setting. It was very residential. And it, 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 so it, it was amazing to see that, that, uh, that they've come so far. Right now, in, in, in Denmark, I can remember people telling me, we, we, we can't wait to get to the nursing home. I'd rather go to the nursing home. In, in Denmark, there was a movement to keep everybody at home. And I think Staying at home is a great idea, but if you're isolated, you're isolated. Uh, what's ironic, with since I've come out with the book and, and, and there's been a number of articles and stories, people are not sending me, friends and colleagues, are not sending me stories about community. They're sending me stories about isolation. Like, do you know, being alone and isolated, doesn't matter where you are, it's worse than having five to ten uh, packs of cigarettes a day. It's unhealthy. So what Community Center Living does, it, it brings people together. And when people come together, they share ideas. And if we can have people going into the best of places and walking out saying this is the way it needs to be, the next building that gets built, we have to build it this way. Now, what's been, the, what's been the response of the assisted living uh, companies in this country? Because it's becoming a huge industry. It's not greatly regulated, and they provide... Uh, these huge facilities, one just went up about a half mile from my house uh, that was filled up within days after it opened. Uh, but I have no idea what's going on there because there's no invite, no welcoming, nothing that would attract me as someone, knock wood, who doesn't need it yet. I think the, when they developed the assisted living, it was a great step forward to fix the institutional settings we had. But the final step really has to be you don't just build housing. That isolates people. You build gathering places for your community. There was a place in Norway that was one of the last stops that I went to. And I, if you think about this, in three weeks I visited over 60 places and, had, and I interviewed professionals. This was the last day, and I had to drive two hours uh, from Oslo to find this 
place. And I remember driving there saying, you know, I was homesick, I was exhausted, because I was writing and, uh, and, and dictating notes and all that. And I got there and I said, I'm going to stay 20 minutes, I'm going to be polite, I'm going to look at the lights, because everybody's doing the same. In my head, that's what I thought. Five hours later, I was changed once again, because I saw this facility. They had gone to the community, found out what the needs of the community were, and the community needed a place to gather, to come together to meet other people. Once they figured out what the, that, uh, the neighborhood needed, what the city needed, what the town needed, they then said, okay, let's add housing. And they get 1,000 visitors a day. Can you imagine having all these visitors going through all these facilities? Do you, do you really have to be as regulated? They're almost like mini regulators coming to your place, encouraging you to do better. The power of community-centered living is that you are building for a community, which means you're always on your toes to be better, to make the gathering experience better than the one before. It's powerful, and it, 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 it takes all these assisted livings, even nursing homes, everywhere, and it allows us to shift away from institutional design and, in most cases, institutional thinking. So do, do, you, the, do you think that this works for all levels of care, for, for nursing care? Is this something that we could embrace from, you know, beyond assisted living into tra- more traditional nursing home care, even though it's, it's a different design? Absolutely. I think when you bring people together, that's a natural human thing to do. And I, I, I always say to people, I love it when people have no idea that they're coming to an assisted living. It's not about marketing a facility. It's about marketing human connection. And if you allow that to happen, you know, nursing homes will become more residential. I went to some great nursing homes in Denmark. They had balconies and things like that. It was, um, it was amazing. Some of them had washer dryers in their studios. And being the American, the American person that I was, my, one of my questions, I'll never forget asking this, are you concerned people are going to jump off the balcony? And he looked at me and he said, well, um, you know, you're from America. You know, people can make choices. That's their, that's their responsibility. <laughs> I was blown away. I, I like that. If they choose to jump off the balcony, that's you a choice choose, you made. Who, who, who am I? The, but I'm going to give you a residential setting. I'm not going to give you an institution. I'm not going to put you in a rubber, rubber outfit to protect you because that's not what happens in our journey in life. And I don't believe that a, a journey in life begins the day we are born. I don't believe the journey should end the day you go through and move into one of these places. The journey can't continue if you're isolated from people. And if you're going to have a neighborhood, a village to raise your children, how can you segregate one of the most important groups in that segment? The the grandparents, the adults that really have had a lot of experience should be connected. I mean, why should we repeat the mistakes of our elders when they can tell us, don't do this? It's like a shortcut in your journey in life. You kind of you you can avoid the uh, pitfalls because someone will say something to you and say, "Don't do this. Do something over here." Well, and let, as you, well let me ask sorry, you another. No, let me ask you another question. Now, when you developed the Scandinavian Cultural Center, was there a need in your community for that, or you brought that idea of a Scandinavian center, um, and people in the community enjoyed it because it didn't just didn't exist before. It didn't exist, and it was our way of bringing all, in our case, it was our way of build, bringing all the Scandinavian groups together in the Boston area. So but that you already had some time, people from that. You already had a community of Scandinavian. A small, very small community, but it was our way of sharing the culture with the Boston, non-Scandinavians, because we have a lot of non-Scandinavians that are coming and going every day. And, and I will tell you that when I went to the place in Norway, they did it the right way. They found out what their uh, town and city needed, the needs, the gathering opportunities. Then they added housing. Well, I was I was so excited about building the Scandinavian Living Center. I said, well, look, we'll have 50% common space, uh, 50% housing. We know what we have to do. I was lucky because I had a Scandinavian board of directors. They understood. And then it took us several years to kind of get everybody to understand what we were trying to do. Today, I'll give you an example. We had a developer come into our city, and they had a town meeting. I wasn't there. I heard about this two weeks after the fact. The neighbors, politicians started pestering them with questions. Are you going to be have common space for the neighbors? Are you going to be like the Scandinavian Living Center? And that's how it begins. The consumers, 
the caregivers, you and I, all of us, we have to start thinking differently. If you're going to build a housing place, build a, a gathering place for all ages, because that's the magic of community-centered living. It's just maintaining the neighborhood. It's maintaining our journeys. It's making it easier, which leads to the, one of the other principles. 20 years ago, I was talking about maintaining our lifestyle. Well, with community-centered living, it's, it's about trying different things, not just maintaining the hobbies and interests. When you bring lots of programs and people together, if you're living in one of these places, you can try something different. Bingo. Your, that's a, that's a great place. doesn't have to stop. That's a great place <laughs> to tell you we are flat out of time, but I'll tell you what, we could probably go another three hours if we had the time, and uh, we'll try to get you back on again soon. Uh, I, I want to follow the progress and see whether you're uh, having folks across the country who are imitating more and more of what you're doing. Creating Unlimited Options for Aging, The Path Forward is Joe Carella's book, and we thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Up next on Caregiver SOS On Air, Take 10 with Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Jamie Heisman. We know caregiving is stressful, challenging, often frustrating, but it can be rewarding. Learn about caregiving while helping yourself at the 2018 San Antonio Caregiver Summit, Navigating the Journey, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Speakers include New York Times reporter John Leland, author of Happiness is a Choice You Make, and Dr. Sharon Lewis, recognized expert on caregiving issues and developer of the Stress Busting Program. The conference also includes a panel of experts focusing on navigating the end-of-life journey. The summit is on November 1st, 2018, 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Whitley Theological Center, 285 Oblate Drive. Social work and nursing CEUs are available. Free respite care also available for up to 20 spots. The event is free, including lunch, but pre-registration is required online at caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491, 6491. At the end of each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10, which is a segment in which Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and caregiving, and our co-host Carol Zerniel and I join you for what we hope is a quick 10-minute discussion of an interesting topic, and we kick it off uh, spinning off an article that was in a recent uh, issue of Next Avenue, the online PBS website, Broken Heart Syndrome, Illness After Loss, and it recounts how after Barbara Bush died, uh, George H.W. Bush really within hours became seriously ill. After Johnny Cash's wife, June, died at age 73, he died four months later, and there are so many examples of that. Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, you can go on and on and on. So we thought maybe, Dr. Jamie, this could be real, broken heart syndrome. It is very real, Ron. Um, it's, it's definitely a condition, actually, has been treated by a lot of the great, great centers of excellence around um, cardiac disease. It's a, it's a temporary kind of heart condition. It's, it's brought about by a stressful situation. So let's say you have a stressful situation. Obviously, cortisone really pours into the system. Anxiety just creates it. And it can trigger physical illness in somebody. And, and it actually is a, it mimics, if you will, an anxiety attack or, or chest pains. So it's, it's, it's a real deal. We do call it actually broken heart syndrome. And can it be treated with talk therapy or you need medication? No, no, it's actually it's treatable, um, oddly enough, it, even though it's, the, it's a medical sort of phenomenon. You can treat it through therapy. You can treat it through taking care of yourself. You can treat it by knowing that you're going to be triggered in a very, very challenging way. Um, and at that moment in time, put your support system around you, your support group, and not isolate. Because what it is, again, is it's like a pouring. It's like a forceful contraction of the heart, if you will, pouring of cortisone inside the system. And there's nothing that does it more than losing a loved one or complicated grief. Well, the article that um, Ron was referring to actually talks about the heart can become enlarged. So it's a physiological response. The body is actually changing. And, and so... 
so many times we talk about psychosomatic, you know, it's all in your head, but a lot of times there's your body responds in actuality to these types of situations. It's adrenaline. It just causes it. And, you know, it temporarily damages uh, people's hearts. And that adrenaline is so strong when you lose a loved one, especially after 40, 50, 60 years of a marriage. When you describe George Bush, it was almost simultaneous that he ended up into the hospital as soon as Barbara passed. Well, I was at a. I happened to be at a funeral just this morning um, for uh, some folks. Are when our WellMed family and the, the parents and the the mother who had passed away was ninety one. And you know, I I was looking at her father. You know, the father and the family and and all of the kids and and I reading the article and just thinking. You know what impact is this going to have when you when you live to be in your nineties and most of your life you've lived together. That's it's it's really really tough, and and you can see, you know, the toll that grief can take on people. A nineteen uh, a twenty twelve study of widowed people born between nineteen ten and nineteen thirty found that widowed men have a thirty percent increase in mortality over their expected rates after a wife dies. They call it the widowhood effect. It's a huge trigger, the unexpected death of a loved one. But actually, broken heart syndrome also has a lot of other triggers that could occur. I mean, even domestic abuse, um, huge arguing. It's any time, you know, job loss, divorce. It's when our system gets flooded with this anxiety, and it just creates exactly what Carol says, is an abnormality of the heart. And so we do need to be really mindful of of the physical stressors in our lives because physical stressors far beyond the the loss of a loved one can actually create broken heart syndrome. So does it help if we get those emotions out? Let's say, you know, a loved one has passed away. You know, is is crying and expressing your grief, is that um, one of the things that you could do? To, is to make sure that whoever is seems to be suffering, you know, lets their emotions show? Absolutely, Carol. You know, I always say as an as a advocate, as you are too, for caregiving, is that therapy is critical long before somebody passes. Therapy is a place where you can actually connect and bond with somebody who can reflect the world back to you, and you can actually cry your eyes out. I often tell you, you know, I love being a patient. Uh, I certainly love being the one who's actually crying. Um, but having that safe spot, even before these incredible intense losses or, or issues happen in our place, gives us a place that we can process, that we can actually prevent, if you will, broken heart syndrome. Now, for those who've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're talking about broken heart syndrome and i think every one of you who are listening know of one or two or three or maybe more couples where one spouse dies and the other spouse passes away within a very short period of time uh, after that and dr jamie among the uh, patients you've seen over the years have you been able to work with some who are going through this yes ron and usually it's older um people uh, at least 50 to 60 years or older seems to have the prevalence of broken heart syndrome. Um, in terms of one sex, I know you, we, we're talking about men like George Bush, but really females are disproportionately inclined to have this broken heart syndrome. There's also the issue that you must have, uh, that you may have a neurological condition or uh, a psychiatric disorder. I mean, if you have a psychiatric disorder, obviously loss, if you will, is going to be the greatest trigger. And the complications are exactly what we're talking about, broken heart syndrome. Well, I heard you say that if we take care of ourselves, our emotional health along the way, that may reduce the risk of, you know, a broken heart syndrome of of catastrophically reacting to a situation to a death. It's true, Carol. You know, often the medical in these cases, certainly above 50 and 60-year-olds, drives the psychological meaning that obviously our medical conditions, whether they're chronic or we're isolating around it, will create these psychological issues in our lives. But we can reverse that trend by really putting in the proper support systems, by really taking care of ourselves, having a support group, a therapist. And then the psychological can often drive the medical, which is the exact reverse. 
Well, they had an interesting suggestion in in this article um, saying to, you know, perhaps think about a legacy that you could put together that would honor the person that you've lost. So maybe it's planting a tree or a garden, or maybe it's um, putting a stone, buying a stone to have in the in the churchyard, you know, but just something that reminds you that you're honoring that person and that um, it's going to stand for something that as time goes by that their memory will not die with them. That's a wonderful ritual. Obviously, religions and cultures have those. Um, but again, it's not just the unexpected death of a loved one. We have to be really mindful that, you know, frightening things actually create this broken heart syndrome, frightening diagnoses when we don't have support. As I mentioned, you know, domestic abuse can have it. Um, losing a lot of money or your luck at some point in time creates this. And that's why it's so critical for us to be able to take care of ourselves as a prevention to, you know, syndromes like this, which is very, very real. Well, that was it. That I, I had the chance to travel in Nova Scotia last year and finally read Anne of the Green Gables. And in the book, the man that takes care of Anne dies when he loses all of his money. He dies of a heart attack. Right. Exactly. That's a broken heart syndrome, just like losing a loved one is. It's a, it's a real, like, two-by-four. It's almost trauma. It really is trauma that hits us. And we're totally unprepared because we really haven't laid a foundation of self-care in our lives. So it sounds like we need to broaden our thinking about this. They, they're calling this, you know, broken heart syndrome, but it's not just about somebody dying. We really need to be careful and watch our loved ones anytime there is some sort of a, a catastrophic event. Thinking back to the exactly. stock market crash in the late 1920s, a lot of people exactly in, lost everything in one day. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Now, we, we really can't plan for that. That could happen around any given time, obviously, as can any episodic event that creates broken heart syndrome. But back to our loss of a loved one after many years, if caregivers who are listening to this understand that this is a real possibility, and then they can plan for the prevention of this broken heart syndrome, then they can, as I often say, take their oxygen first and really practice, you know, a routine of self-care, knowing full well that this is a possibility in their lives. Well, you get the last word, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We thank you for listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.